So we are continuing our series, Redefined. Um, it is a look at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples. This is probably the most famous uh, teaching ever given. It is the most uh, impactful. It is the most culture-changing teaching on ethics and morality in uh, the history of time. And we are looking at it today because I believe that even though Jesus gave this teaching 2,000 years ago, it is just as impactful and relevant to us today. Um, And today what we're going to be looking at is one of the most famous parts of this sermon. I was reading that it is one of the most, um, it's the most quoted and said things in the history of the world, which I thought that was interesting. Um, But we're going to be looking at something called the Lord's Prayer. If you are in uh, church circles, especially in Catholic circles, you might know it as Our Father. And it has been said uh, millions of times by millions and millions of, uh, of people. And essentially what it is, is it's Jesus teaching his followers how to pray. He's teaching them what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it is to pray. And before uh, we look at the text, I want to just answer the question, why do we pray? Have you ever thought about that? Like if God is all-powerful, and we're not, and if God is much smarter than us, and he knows what to do, why are we praying? Have you ever thought about that? And, and we're not going to dive super deep into that. Maybe one day we'll do a teaching just on prayer. But, but really, I just want to answer it really simply. The reason that we pray is not to get from God what we want. The reason we pray is not to, to change God's mind about something. But the primary reason that we pray is, is two things. It's one, to be formed according to the will of God. The reason that we pray is so that we can be formed according to his will and to become closer in an intimate relationship with him. So let me say that again. The primary reason that we pray is so that we can be formed according to the will of God and so that we can become closer to him. We often think about prayer as getting God to do something or getting something from God, but I want you to to start thinking about it as something as it's a way of connecting with him and beginning to learn his heart on things. And the more and more you pray and the more consistently you pray, it will have an effect on you spiritually. It will change you. You will notice the more and more time you spend with Jesus, the more your heart begins to change. The more you care about the things that he cares about. And not only that, but you will feel a deeper connection with him over the years. And so today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And uh, there's actually two accounts of the Lord's Prayer in in the Bible. The other one you can read about in Luke chapter 11. We're not going to be looking at that today, but I do think there's something interesting about that that I want to highlight really quick. Um, In the account in Luke, It starts with one of his disciples asking him, Jesus, 
you know, John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray, um, and that was a really common thing. Uh, rabbis, which Jesus would have been a rabbi at the time, rabbis would have taught their followers how to pray. And they each would have had, you know, their way of praying. And so his disciples were like, Jesus, are you going to give us a way to pray? How do we pray? And, 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 and I got to say, I've been a pastor now for 15 years. And pretty much, this is a, this is a relatively common question that I get. Like, I, I struggle praying. How do I pray? Like, I really, I, I struggle praying to, the, to, to God. I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to do. How do I do it? And typically, when someone asks me that question, I'll say something along the lines of, you know, just talk to God. Just talk to him like you'd talk to anyone else. Just talk to him. Tell him what's on your heart. And, and I believe that's pretty good advice. But this week, actually, this week was the first time that I thought, well, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus, when his disciples said, how do we pray? He didn't say, just talk to God. He said, you want to know how to pray? I'll teach you. I'll show you. And he gave us this prayer. He gave us this example. And we're going to be looking at that example today. Um, and I think it's interesting. We're going, to, we're going to start off a little bit before because in teaching them how to pray, he actually first teaches them how not to pray. We're going to look at that real quick. So we're, we're going to start in verse 5, and he says this. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So just a couple things real fast. Essentially what Jesus is talking about here is two things. We talked about it a little bit last week, but one, the kind of first part is he was talking about this desire to appear righteous in front of people. Like the point necessarily is not that it's bad to pray in public. Jesus prayed in public. Many people in the Bible prayed in public. That's not the point that Jesus was trying to make here. The point that Jesus was trying to make was don't pray to get other people's approval. We're about to, to celebrate Thanksgiving, and almost any time I go anywhere because I'm a pastor, people ask me to pray. And I think they're expecting something a lot more eloquent. Usually I say, thanks for the food. Amen. Let's eat. Um, but, but the reality is, is, is so many times you'll hear someone pray, and it just sounds like what Jesus is saying, these big words that don't really even mean anything. And Jesus is saying, don't try to impress other people with your prayers. It's, it's for us. It's for us. And the second thing he's talking about is he's talking about, he calls them the pagans, and essentially it was this thing where people would try to barter with God and say, God, um, I'm going to convince you that, that we need more crops. And if I do this and if you do that, and, and then we'll have more crops. And he's saying, don't do that. You don't have to come to me out of fear. You don't have to come to God out of fear or feel like you have to do something transactional or just babble on and on until you get what you want. He's saying you don't have to do either of those things because God already knows what you want. And so then he goes on. He says, this then 
is how you should pray. We don't typically do this in this church, but would you guys do something with me? Will you read this with me? I think this is something powerful to say. So there's different versions of this. You guys might know the who art in heaven, that version, but we're going to just kind of read the simpler version. But it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So some of you are waiting for another line. Who knows what that other line is? There you go. Okay, there's... So the reason that we don't say, I think that's a great thing to say. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's actually not technically in the prayer. Jesus, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it being in the prayer. It's a good thing to pray, to say, you get all the glory, God. You get all the glory. It's actually a reference back to Psalms, so it's biblical, but it's not in that part of the Bible. So this is what Jesus said to do. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this piece by piece and see why did Jesus... Tell us to pray this way. And some of, the, some of the little pieces will take more time, and some of them we'll just kind of talk about quickly. Um, but a question that often gets asked about the Lord's Prayer is, does Jesus actually expect us to pray that prayer? Does he want us to say that prayer, or is it just an example? And depending on your church tradition, you might say, no, this is something that we pray every day or every week. Or some people say, no, I have actually never said that prayer. It's just an example. And I would say, I think it's yes and no. I think the answer of if we're supposed to pray that prayer is kind of yes and no. I think it's a great prayer to pray for a number of reasons. I think it, it, it helps us to center on what's important. And some people might ask, but, but isn't it better if you just pray straight from your heart? If you just pray something that's not written thousands of years ago that just comes straight from your heart? And maybe, maybe it's better. They might say, isn't it better to not have some just ritualistic words that don't mean anything to you? And I would say, yes. It's better to not just have words that don't mean anything to you. But these words don't have to not mean anything to us. We can, we can choose not to pray these words in that way. See, the way I use it personally is I use this as a starting place in my prayers because it helps orient myself to what's important, and it gives me a great foundation to pray. I think it, I think it is a model, but I think it's very helpful to actually pray, pray these actual words. And I actually know people I have friends who pray this prayer multiple times a day. I pray this 38, no, I don't. I don't pray it multiple times a day, but I try to regularly in my life come back and pray this prayer. So let's jump in. Let's take it piece by piece and explore why Jesus would teach us to pray this way. So let's look at the first line. Our Father in heaven. And this one's really important, so I want to spend a little bit of time on this one. Our Father. Jesus, I believe the reason that he's telling us this, to start this way, I think this is really important, because he's saying to start um, by 
reminding ourselves who we're talking to. I don't think we're telling God that he is Father. I don't think he needs to be reminded like, oh, I forgot I am the Father. No, that's not what this is about. It's reminding ourselves, you are my dad. You are Father. And it really, what it is, is it's more, it's less about remembering who he is, and it's more remembering who you are. And do you know who you are? You are a beloved child of God. You are loved with an infinite, everlasting, passionate love by your Father in heaven. He really, really likes you. He not just loves you because he made you and it's like in his nature to love you, but he likes the way he made you. He enjoys you. And so I think starting with our Father is about getting our posture right. Coming to the Lord. See, here's the thing. Actually, Father isn't even the best translation. If we look at the original word here, the Abba Father isn't this like kind of formal Father. It's, it's actually better translated like Daddy. Did you know that? I remember a number of years ago, I had a worship leader that I oversaw, and she would, every time she prayed from stage, she would say, Daddy, God, and it was so weird. <laughs> like, it always kind of weirded me out, and we actually started getting some complaints about it. <laughs> and I had someone, though, who came up to me and said, I don't like it because it's not biblical. The Bible actually doesn't say Daddy. And I said, technically, you're wrong. It does say Daddy. Now, I still kind of made her stop doing it because it was weird. It made people feel uncomfortable. But the, the reality is, is the way that Jesus wants us to come to him, the way that he wants us to come is like a, a kid who is excited to see their dad and knows that their dad loves them. Let me, let me say it this way. Um, so, you know, I've said, my name is JT. But when I get a phone call and they ask for Jonathan, I know that they don't know me. I know that they don't know me. But if they ask for JT, at least I know that they kind of are familiar with me, right? They know me in some way. Now, if they call me Japers, there are only like three people in the world who call me Japers. It came from, I had this kid in high school who I was good friends with who, uh, long story, but he used to call me Japers. And then it picked up, my family started calling me Japers. Now Lara calls me Japers. Um, but here's the thing. There is only like one person in the world who gets to crawl on my lap and get in a little ball, wrap her little arms around my neck, and say, Daddy, there's something intimate and special and, and close and familiar with that. And Jesus is saying that's how we can go to God. And see, when I'm being a good dad, what I communicate to my daughter is that I'm never too busy for you, baby. You can always crawl on my lap. Now, I'm not always a good dad, but when I am a good dad, that's when I'm communicating to her. 
And do you know, and we'll talk about this more in a few weeks, but our Heavenly Father is like the prototype Father. He is a good, good Father who is never too busy for you. And we don't have to come to Him in fear. We don't have to come to Him and beg and plead. We can come to Him and know that He already wants to meet our needs, and He knows what we need. He is our good Father, and He loves us. John Calvin um, says, the reason we start by calling Him Dad, the reason that we start this way is this. He says, by the, sweetest of, the sweetness of this name, He frees us from all distrust. That we know when we say, Daddy, we know we can trust Him. And that's why we start. We start with familiarity, daddy. Now, actually, James sent me a video earlier this week um, of this little girl saying, essentially, isn't God's name Howard? Something like that. Like, shouldn't we, do we pray to Howard? And the mom was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And she said, you know, Howard be thy name. <laughs> It's not Howard be thy name, it's hallowed be your name. And I understand this little girl, the reason that she didn't know is because no one says hallowed. What does that even mean? What does it mean when we say hallowed be your name? Well, essentially it means, God, you are holy. God, you are sacred. God, you are different and greater than anything else. You are amazing. You know, I was actually, I was asking Lara this week, and I said, what, is it, what do you think of when you think of hallowed be your name? And she was like, you know, like this kind of healthy fear of God. Like he's big. And, and, and I think that's right. I think there's something in that that's true. But I said, the more I learn about it, I think about it like this. So Lara and I are about to go on vacation, like in a couple hours. I know, it's going to be nice. We're going to go down to Florida And I have a similar feeling to what I think Jesus is talking about when I stand on the beach and look out on the ocean. When I look out on the ocean, there is a feeling of wonder and amazement. I'm like, this is big. This is dangerous. But it's fun, and it's it's beautiful, and it's inviting. Or maybe you feel that way when you see the mountains. Or maybe you you feel that way when you look up at the stars. It's this feeling um, where you're confronted with this feeling of, I am very small. But, But you, God, are big and amazing. Hallowed be your name. It's when we are captivated with wonder towards him. He is all-powerful. He is everlasting. He is the beginning and the end. He is the definition of love, and He created the universe. He is sustaining the universe, and He is actively restoring the universe, and that with one word, He spoke you into existence. With one word, He spoke the stars into existence. He conquered the grave. He, He defeated sin and the power of death, that's hallowed be your name. You are other, God. 
You are bigger and greater and more wonderful than anything on this earth. That's who He is. So we say, you're my dad, but dad, you are amazing, right? You are amazing. And then we say, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So what does this mean? You know, unfortunately, I have heard, you know, you know, Christian nationalists use this, use this text and say, we need to make America our Christian kingdom. We need to have God's kingdom here on earth, so let's, let's make America the kingdom of God. But when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, the Bible's not talking about a place. Did you know that? The Bible is not talking about a geographical location. It's not talking about a place with borders. And, and it's not talking about Israel. And it's not talking about America. And it's not talking about the church. Do you know what the kingdom of God is? The kingdom of God, every time you read that in the Bible, think this, the rule and reign of God. The rule and reign of God. So the Bible teaches that God is the ruler over all things, right? That he created all things. And when he created us, when he created humanity in the earth, he gave us the keys to the kingdom. In Genesis, it tells us that God said, you guys have dominion over the earth, meaning you guys rule and subdue the earth. You guys are in charge. You guys are in charge. And, and we basically had... You know, you flip one page and you see that didn't go very well. What happened? We handed those keys over to Satan. And we said, okay, you're in charge now. And the Bible tells us, it calls Satan the ruler of this age. It calls it this present evil age. And so there's the kingdom of Satan here on earth. And God sees this happen, and what does he do? Does he say, you guys blew it, I'm out of here. I'm going to go create another universe. So, no, he says, I am going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to send my son to reestablish my kingdom here on earth. And so when Jesus came, the central message, if you read through what he would talk about, he would come and say things like, guys, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is it's in your midst. The kingdom of God is near. And almost everything he talked about was about the kingdom of God coming and breaking through. And not only did he talk about it, but he demonstrated it, right? With every miracle that Jesus performed, he was demonstrating that the kingdom of God was breaking through. He said, when my kingdom comes, here's what happens. When my kingdom comes, the, the dead rise. When my kingdom comes, the, the sick are healed. When my kingdom comes, the hungry are fed. When my kingdom comes, demons are cast out. When my kingdom comes, the excluded are included. When my kingdom comes, walls of racism and hostility are broken down and groups become one. When my kingdom comes, all is made new. He says, that's what my kingdom looks like. 
The prisoners are set free. The blind can see. And he goes on to say, and I'm introducing you to my kingdom, but I will fully establish my kingdom when I come again. So we live in this time where we like to call it the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God is here, but it's not here. We see the kingdom of God. I've prayed for people and seen them healed. But I've prayed for people and nothing has happened. I've seen, you know, we see people, uh, you know, encounter the presence of God. We see people who, whose lives are changed, who are set free from addiction. We've seen things happen in the kingdom, but we also look out and we see racism and, and, and you know, misogyny and homophobia and all these things that are not part of the kingdom of God. He says, my kingdom is coming. And Jesus, in this thing saying, pray that my kingdom come, is saying, pray that my kingdom comes even more with more fullness. Pray that it breaks through on earth. And so we look at things. We look at these things that seem hopeless, and that's when we say, oh, kingdom come. Oh, kingdom come. Richard Foster, who is like one of my favorite thinkers on prayer, he says this. He says, the goal of the Christian life is not simply to get into heaven, but it's to get heaven into us. That's the goal of the Christian life. Do you remember singing those songs of, you know, I'll fly away or I'll be taken away into heaven one day? I get it. I get it. But the the, the goal of Christian life, the goal of the kingdom of God is not to be taken away into heaven. It's to have heaven break into earth. Break into earth. Praying your kingdom come is a desire to see things made right in our lives. It's for heaven and earth to collide. It's a desire to see his justice come and say people shouldn't be treated this way. God, bring your kingdom. It's, it's to see his peace and his restoration. It's to see the, 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 the sick be healed. It's all of those things. And we say, let your kingdom come. That's why we pray that. And then Jesus goes on. He says, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. This would have had immediately brought to the listener's mind the story in Exodus of, of Moses. Have you guys seen, you know, the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt, the story of Moses where he says, let my people go, to, brings them through the Red Sea, it parts, and it's amazing. And then what happens? Is it like the big celebration and everything is good? No, actually what happens is the people of God, the Israelites, wander through the desert for like, a couple generations. And they have nothing. But the story tells us in, in Exodus, and you can read about it in Numbers too, that the Israelites, that God was with them. And that he would provide for them. And he provided for them this like heavenly, supernatural bread called manna. And he would provide it for them Every day. 
And it was some kind of, I, I remember being a kid and like wishing I could taste manna. Like, oh, I can't wait to eat it up in heaven. I'm still going to. When I get to heaven, I'm going to eat some manna. But he would give it to them daily. It was their provision. It was so they could survive. So when we pray that, give us our daily bread, we are saying, would you provide for us, Lord, what we need? Would you provide what we need? And this helps us to remember that all that we have, all the things that we, we, we have are gifts from God, that God is the provider, even if it's you know, from our job or from our families or whatever. It all comes from Him. So it encourages thankfulness. Lord, would you provide for us? Because it all comes from you. And the fact that it's daily is important. I thought it was, it was interesting that with manna, you weren't able to store it up. Did you know that? That God would give the people manna, and they couldn't, like some people would try to like, store it all up and store it away, but it would rot. It would go bad. You could only get the amount that you needed for the day. It was daily bread. And why is that important? Because it helps us to have a regular rhythm of coming to God, to realize our dependency on Him. It, God doesn't want to, us to just like you know, get all that we need and then, like, come back to him, like, six months later and say, actually, I have another need, God. He wants us to have these daily rhythms where we say, I need you, Dad. I need you, Dad. I need you today like I did yesterday. Give us today what we need. And it says bread, but it's all about all of our needs. What, 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 you know, whatever we need, give me rest. I'm tired. Give us hope, give us peace, give us health, give us the things that we need. And here's an interesting thing that I don't hear many people talk about. This, I, I think this is really powerful. But do you notice that it says, our daily bread? It doesn't say, give me my daily bread. It doesn't say, give me what I need. I think we've kind of lost this idea of community. Our faith in America has become so independent and so individual. It's become our personal relationship with God. And I think there is importance to that. But the Bible often teaches that our faith is a communal faith. That we come to God communally. That even in our prayer, when we pray as an individual, we're praying for the, the, the community. It's not my Father in heaven, it's our Father. It's not my daily bread, it's our daily bread. And maybe, maybe Jesus wants us to think along the lines of, I don't eat unless we all eat. And not just in food or resources, but I'm not, I'm not going to look just for my needs to be met, but I want all of our needs to be met. This is helping us for our prayer life to not just become selfish about what I need, 
not my wants and my desires and my daily bread. I think Jesus wants us as his followers to be thinking not just of ourselves, but all of God's children. This is why I believe Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. could say something so profound as injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That when you are being held down, that should affect all of us. That when one group, one people is being marginalized and hurt, that should affect us all. And so we don't just say, well, my needs are being met. We say, your freedom, your hope, your joy, your needs are directly tied to mine. Lord, would you help us to understand that more fully? Would you help us to not be selfish people? And here's what's really cool. Jesus would regularly go around meeting people's earthly needs, right? He didn't just say, it's just all about your spiritual life. He would go and feed people who were hungry, He would come and include people who needed to belong in community. He would go and and heal people's sight who were blind. He would meet their physical needs. That was very important to Jesus. But ultimately, he says this in John chapter 6, 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never, ever go hungry. Jesus wants to meet your physical needs, but he wants to meet something deeper. Later in that chapter, he talks about how that manna that we read about in Exodus, that manna from heaven, he says, it's actually a picture of me. He says, I am the manna from heaven. I am the one who satisfies your needs. I am the provision that you need. I am the one who forgives your debt. I'm the one who saves you, who rescues you. And then we move on to read, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Jesus, over and over and over again, not just here, but all throughout his life, regularly links our relationship with him to our relationship with others. He says, the way you care for the needy is the way you love me. And here he's saying the way you forgive is directly linked to to being forgiven. Because you have been forgiven, therefore you need to be a forgiver. And I believe the more and more we get in touch with how much we have been forgiven, the more we see and realize and become aware of what Jesus has done in our lives, the natural outpouring is forgiving others. And this is tough, though. Forgiving people who have hurt us is hard. It's difficult, and we've talked about this a number of times through the past number of weeks, so we won't go super deep into it this week, but, but I want to say that when we are able to forgive those who have hurt us, 
It brings us freedom. I can, I can think right now of a few people in my life who have, like, severely hurt me. And, like, really real emotional and even physical ways. And when I have worked through the process, because it's a process, but when I have worked through that process of forgiving those people, it felt like a million pounds were lifted off of my shoulders. And oftentimes I take the weight back a little bit and, and I have to be like, oh no, like I, have, I, I forgive them. There's this quote that says, unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. That gets often attributed to a number of people, but I don't think we actually really know who originally said that. But what I think they're saying is when we, when we don't forgive, we think it's like kind of punishing them, but actually what it is is it's punishing yourself. Because there's such freedom in forgiving others. It's strange, but I have actually, I, it's super weird, but I, I mean this. I've gotten to the point that when I realize that I have unforgiveness or bitterness towards someone in my, in my heart, when I, when I have like someone has wronged me and I'm like super unforgiving about it, I actually get excited because I know I'm on the like precipice of receiving freedom and feeling so much better. Jesus goes on and says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is saying, Lord, would you help us avoid to doing the wrong things? Would you help me see this world the way you see it? Would you help me to know where I'm supposed to go? I think we have this misunderstanding of what sin is. I think we oftentimes think of sin as breaking God's rules. But really, when the Bible talks about sin, it's actually this archery term that means missing the mark. And so when it says, lead us, you know, not into temptation, it's like, Lord, I don't want to miss the mark. I want to go where you're going. I want to go where you're going. I want to be where you are. And when we find ourselves, um, you know, in, in places where we have missed the mark, when we're in trouble and we see that, that we have given in to things we shouldn't have given in to or we, we've walked into places and gone into areas in our life that we shouldn't have gone into, we say, Lord, would you deliver us? Would you rescue us? Would you write our course? Because here's the reality. There are storms in our lives. There are, there are heavy storms in our lives. And sometimes, sometimes God helps us to avoid the storms. He navigates us around those storms. But sometimes we have to walk through those storms. And we say, God, would you protect me? Would you deliver me in this storm? And ultimately, his promise to us is not that we will never, man, I have heard so many sermons and teachings and 
little quotes about how God wants you to have, like, a life free of trouble. And that being a Christian means you're not going to have troubles anymore. And if you have been taught that, if you have been invited into a faith that says your life is going to get better and easier once you accept Jesus, I just want to say I'm sorry. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus has this promise. We love claiming the promises of Jesus. But Jesus has this one promise in John where he says, in this world, this is a promise, you will have troubles. But take heart. I've overcome the world. And his promise is that I'm going to walk with you through your troubles. I'm going to deliver you through your troubles. I'm going to rescue you. Maybe not in the way you think you need to be rescued, but I will rescue you. I will walk with you through this. And so here's what I believe. I believe the more and more we pray this prayer and, and our prayer life becomes more similar to this. We take these, these ideas and we incorporate them into the way we pray. Let me just say, too, my most common prayer is, oh, Lord, help me. <laughs> but when we start incorporating these ideas of it's not all about me and I can come to you with no fear, you're my dad and you're amazing, and we, we incorporate these things I believe what's going to happen is what we talked about up top. That you will find that you are being more formed according to the will of God. You're becoming more the person God made you to be. We say this all the time in this church, but we believe that God made you on purpose, for a purpose. That God made you with, with good intentions. He has beautiful plans for your life. And I believe when we, when we pray to God and we spend more time with him, we become formed more into that person that God has made us to be. And, and, and not only that, but we get to connect with that hallowed being, the one that is so other. We get to connect with the creator of the universe. Have you ever thought about this? The one who said, let there be light and there was light knows your name, and he is speaking to you today, and he wants to know you and be known by you. He wants to have a real, authentic, intimate relationship with him, and so that, I think, is the point of this prayer, is God wants us to be transformed, to be more like the person he made us to be, and he wants us to grow closer to him. So here, here's what I want to do. You can come up, Eli. 